Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Actually, we're going to go all the way through verse 14 tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm speeding up a little bit. I have a tendency to get real, I get bogged down in the details sometimes. And that's not bad, but you can go too slow too. So I'm going to speed up a little bit. But let me, you've got the Barclay translation there, but let me read it in the King James or New King James because um, the thought really starts in verse 7 and 8 through verse 10, 7 through 10. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And we'll go beyond that. In verse 9 where he says, The riches of his grace to abound toward us, having made known to us the mystery of his will. That phrase there, having made known, is, is an aorist participle, which really doesn't mean much, other than an aorist participle tells you that the action of that having made known actually precedes the action of the main verb from verse 8. So in verse 8, when he says, talking about our redemption, he says he made known or he made it to abound toward us, having made known to us the mystery of his will. He actually made known the mystery of his will prior to making his redemption abound towards us. Which if you think about it, if you look at Hebrews 11.1, 1, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. You can't have faith unless you first have hope. So him making known to us the mystery of his will, first action that that did was to give us hope, the hope of a Savior, which even, you know, if you look at that chart with the um, dispensation, the really the um, there were some there was knowledge of the of the coming Messiah from the fall of Adam on. It wasn't extremely evident, but if you remember in Genesis three, when God was pronouncing the curse of the fall and He cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, He told the serpent, He said, "There is one coming, the seed of woman, that." You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. He promised him right then, there's one coming. It's going to be born of a woman, and which was a hint to the virgin birth eventually. That's why, obviously, that's why Satan works so hard with Cain and Abel to have Cain murder Abel. He wanted, you know, obviously Cain was, didn't have a great relationship with God. Abel had a better relationship with God. Well, this could be the, the one that's coming to crush my head. 
I'm taking him out. So he worked on Cain to get him to murder his brother. Wow, I've, I've eliminated the Messiah. Little did he realize it was thousands of years down the road because it was a mystery to Satan. He, he has, Satan has a lot of knowledge. He has no wisdom, which a lot of people have that. They have lots of brain power. But they can't apply any of it, which is really where wisdom comes in. But even in the age of conscious, there was that scarlet thread through all of that. If you go back and read through the, the, history, the historical books in Genesis, uh, how else, if not, how else could Noah have stayed clean? And he wasn't sinless, but he was exercising faith in that Messiah. That's why God came to him. He was the last one. You know, out of the entire creation, he was the only one. And that's why he ended up in the ark. God didn't eliminate everybody and start over, but he gave everybody a chance when he was down to, well, I only got one guy left believing for the Messiah. I'm eliminating everybody else. And if you read, if you read through Noah's story, part of their sin was God had told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And by all indications, those early years were, were the population never left that fertile crescent. They stayed really close to where the Garden of Eden, North, North Africa, that North, what we would today would put Egypt in there, um, Jordan, the modern Israel and, and uh, Syria. They stayed all in that, that little area. So it's, they were not obeying that command to carry the you know, to, to really go populate the entire earth. So God judged him. But then with Abraham, once he, he had Noah, there were governments, but most of them were corrupt. That's part of the reason he told Abraham, get out of the city of Ur and don't take any of your family with you. So Abraham, great man of faith and power that he was, he grabbed it, snatched up his extended family, including his father, and left, immediately disobeyed God. But through all of that, there was still, they knew there, at least had hints that there's one coming that is going to save us. And they had, it, it wasn't a, a, a strong faith based on a lot of knowledge, because they didn't have a lot of knowledge. But that's part of what I, I ministered. I don't remember if that was last Sunday or the Sunday before. You know, we, we have the, the heresy hunters that want to go through your doctrinal stances and make sure you're perfect. And if you're not, they're ready to consign you to hell. But a lot of these early believers, their doctrine was minuscule. They just didn't have a lot of information. And it, it doesn't take a lot of doctrinal truth to get saved. God's not looking for pure doctrine. He's looking for people that will do what, he, what they're told when he tells them. And when they mess it up, which we all do, you take correction quickly and get back on track. God, that's, that's why David was a man after God's own heart. But that brings us to this. It, and, and I love, that's part of the reason I love Barclay's translation there that I gave you, if you read in verse 9, it said, This happened, that abounding 
towards us, abounding his grace and his inheritance towards us. He said, this happened because he made known to us, past tense, the once hidden but now revealed secret of his will. So, For it was his good pleasure to do. The secret was a purpose which he formed in his own mind before time began, so that the periods of time or the dispensations should be controlled and administered until they reached their full development, a development in which all things in heaven and upon earth are gathered into one in Jesus Christ. That part where he's talking about the New King James or King James talks about the, the dispensation of the fullness of times, that's referring to the millennial reign. Today we have the church. The church includes everybody that from the very first Christian to get saved, probably Mary Magdalene when she was at the, cro- or at the uh, tomb and met Jesus, all the way to the last person to get saved. But most of those people are in heaven today. The body of Christ are the believers in the earth today because we're his body, we're his hands. Once you die and you go to heaven, you're not part of the body anymore, even though you're part of the church. But in the millennial reign, at the rapture, we're all joined. I mean, the, this, when Jesus comes back into the air, he doesn't actually come onto the earth at the rapture. But the dead in Christ go first, pick up their new bodies, come out of the grave, and we meet them in the air with Christ. And <clears throat> that's the church body of Christ. It's all the same. And we get a seven-year marriage supper, a marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what we do for the seven years during the tribulation. We party. We're Jesus, he's our betrothed now, but when our home is ready and he's building a temple, that's all of the church. When that last person gets saved, that's when the rapture happens. And then we go and he consummates the marriage because his bride is whole without spot, without wrinkle, which basically means we get rid of our natural bodies. That's the only way you can be without spot and wrinkle. As long as you have a natural body, you can't be. And I've heard a lot of preachers preach, you got to clean up. you got to clean up before Christ comes back. You can't clean up enough to be without spot and wrinkle. It's not possible when you have a flesh, a body made of flesh that has the nature of sin within it. Um, then, but once we're there, there's no sin. We're all in physical bodies. Jesus is in a physical body. It's the marriage supper, and we will party. Jewish uh, tradition, they partied for seven days. It was a week-long festival, which the dad got to pay for, mm-hmm. the bride's father, where that tradition started. Man, that was a... <laughs> <laughs> I, I've seen the bill on some, some wedding receptions, but they're usually a couple of hours long to have a week long, and you're bringing people in and, and housing them. You know, Jesus is paying an extravagant amount of money for our wedding reception. Seven years of parties. And for the, all the food Nazis out there, there will be bacon on the buffet. <laughs> and pork barbecue. I know there will be, because I'm looking forward to it. 
But God revealed you that. Yes, I, I've requested it. And, and it, you won't have to cast the calories out because your metabolism will be like when you were a teenager and you could eat 40,000 calories a day and never gain a pound. Oh, God, I'm looking to, forward to those days. But that, that is, that's when that happens. We, we can have, at that point, we will be filled with his glory we will have the appearance in heaven that Jesus had at the Mount of Transfiguration. We can have a, um, a portion of that. And I've heard people describe before, because it says, if, if we read on, um, let me read the, the New King James in verse 11. It says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. There is a glory um, to be revealed. Um, Barclay in verse 11 reads, It was in Christ in whom in whom our portion in this scheme, that's our inheritance, was also assigned to us, that it was determined by the decision of him who controls everything to the purpose of his goodwill, that we who were the first to set our hopes upon the coming of the anointed one of God should become the means whereby his glory should be praised. I like the way he phrases that last part. We should become the means whereby his glory should be praised. And part of what I've heard it preached that we are like the moon to the sun. We reflect his glory. And there is a, a, a partial truth that, to that. But we also generate his glory. We have the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's part of what we're going to see here in a minute. Um, the down payment, the guarantee of our redemption is the Holy Spirit. So we are filled with the Spirit. Now, we can never manifest the glory of God the way Jesus did because he had a perfect, sinless. He was perfect. He was sinless. He could manifest the fullness of God's glory, and there wasn't a problem with that. For us, if, if God threw that much glory on us, I think our bodies would be a little cinder. We would just burn up because we still have sin in us. But to the degree that we walk in faithfulness and also to the degree of our call, we can display the glory of God. And it comes from within us. I mean, Moses got so close to God and he wasn't even born again that his face shone. How much less we, because Jesus said, remember, he said the... Um, uh, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet to ever live in, in under the old covenant, bar none. But the least in my kingdom will be greater than John. Well, we look back and we think of Moses and Elijah and Elisha and, and you know, um, John the Baptist. And we think, wow, how could I ever, you know, attain to the status that those people had? And yet Jesus says... The, the, you know, the little corn on the little toe of the body of Christ has more glory than all of those Old Testament saints. So if, if Moses could get so engulfed in God that his face shone, how much more 
can we display that glory, but it's according to our call, according to the office you stand in, and according to your ability to walk humbly and, and not take that glory to yourself, because that, that'll, that'll get you in trouble. But even at the least, I mean, we don't have to even glow. I'm not, that's, that's just one manifestation of the glory of God. But I like the, the primary reason is that his glory should be praised. It all, every time we manifest any action of the Holy Spirit and of God's will, it ha- if it's not pointing to Jesus, it's pointing in the wrong direction. And that gets that probably has gotten more ministers in trouble over the years than any other thing. You get to you know um, you know the old sports adage. You get to read in your own press clippings, and suddenly you think you're you know you've rated something. And I've, you see that. Well, I was back at school today doing uh, the heart dissection for the health teacher, and. I was just listening to some of the boys while the class was getting started. And these are kids at a, a small charter school, less than 300 students. I don't, they've never even come close to winning a sectional in the 1A state tournament. And I've got, there are kids there that can't make their, that team, but if you ask them, they're going to be in the NBA. Well, they're reading their press clippings. <laughs> I, talk, I, I used to joke with them. I said, you're a legend in your own mind. Yeah. And sometimes we, we can take that, you know, we get caught up and get puffed up in our knowledge and think we're really something. When God just, all he cares about is, what are you manifesting? Mm-hmm. What are you, how close are you walking in my will? And um, there's a, actually, the, I, for, I saw a glimpse of it. And I didn't have time to watch it all. I can't remember who put it out, but there's a YouTube um, video. It's only about six or seven minutes long, but it's part of a bigger thing where it has people coming forth and at the judgment seat of Christ. And God asked them, you know, one, one guy was an accountant and he said, I, wanna, I, I need you to account for your evangelistic ministry. And he said, Lord, I wasn't an evangelist. He said, I called you as an evangelist, but Lord, I worked as an accountant doing books for churches and helping them. And I did a lot of free. He said, but I called you as an evangelist. Where are the 1,544 people that you were supposed to influence in your ministry that would have gone on and saved, you know, as you multiply it down through the ages? And he said, well, Lord, I didn't know. He said, you should have paid more attention. And then he had an evangelist come up and he said, where's your accounting job? Because I called you to be an accountant, not an evangelist. But Lord, I got this number of people saved. He said, it doesn't matter. It was all out of your ego and out of your flesh. And then the one I really loved, they had this little old lady came forth and he said, uh, she said, Lord, I'm just happy to be here. He said, I've got a big crown for you. And I started talking about our prayer life. And, and, um, because I'm, I'm convinced, you know, and not to denigrate Billy Graham. I think Billy Graham's a wonderful man. The most impressive thing I ever heard Billy Graham say was somebody asked him this 10 or 15 years ago. said, when, if you look back on your ministry, what are your thoughts? And he said, I did so little with so much. He said, I had so much potential and I accomplished so little. 
And I thought, there's that's real humility right there. He realizes he could have done more. But I, there's, there are going to be some award, rewards for the Billy Grahams of the world, but I am convinced that every pastor of every large church, is, the, the, the major rewards for the ministries of those churches are going to go to the men and women who stayed in their prayer closet and prayed for that ministry. That's where the power comes. In fact, I've, I'm trying to get an appointment to talk to a pastor right now, and God's already put it on my heart that because he's young and in the ministry to just, I can't impress it enough. If for every, well, for every hour you preach, you better have, especially when you're young in the ministry, you probably need 20, 25 hours of preparation to get ready for that sermon. But for every hour of preparation, you better have an hour of prayer. And as a, as, you know, a minister, probably the majority of my time, I spend praying in the Spirit. Because I don't know the need. And, you know, even in our church, you've got 50, 60 people. I don't know the needs of 50, 60 people. I can't possibly keep all that. But God does. And if there's something really pressing, that's how he brings it to me as you pray in the Spirit. But it takes... Al, in fact, if, I don't know if you all remember him, but he was from Rockwall, Texas. He found the church on the rock in Rockwall. He built his church on prayer. He prayed personally three to four hours every day. And uh, I still like his breakdown of the Lord's Prayer. It was, it's a very good guide. But a pastor's main function is to pray for the body and to pray for the ministry. And if you can't do that, your priorities are just fouled up. I mean, and I know people joke, people used to tell me, well, you know, let's go to lunch. I said, well, I'm kind of busy. They said, what do you mean you're busy? You you give two 45-minute lessons twice a week, you know, or you give two lessons in a week. What what do you fill with the rest of your time? (laughs) There's a lot to do. And, I mean, there's a lot of natural stuff to do, but... Majority of it is just praying and, and getting before God. But that is, the, that is how we bring glory to God is through that. But then even more so, immediately when, when we got that knowledge of, the, of his will, that it's God's good, his good pleasure is to bring us into the kingdom. You know, I loved it. When I, the first time I ever read those verses in Romans 8 out of the um, Message Bible, and it, it, set, it phrased it, God called you by name. Man, that as a, as a kid who grew up in the 50s and 60s, that was an important aspect. When somebody chose up for games, you never wanted to be that last person chosen. Oh, that was a... And then it was even worse occasionally you got to that last person and the two captains get in an argument about who had to take them. It's like, I just don't want to play, you know. Uh, but God said, I chose you by name. I, I, I saw you and I saw that this was going to happen and I knew it was going to cost me everything, but I did it anyway just for you. I just wanted to do it for you. That is, that really just makes it personal for me. That, but, but when I saw that, and I had hope in it, and eventually when I, I um, put faith in it, it says in verse 13, 
in him, this is King James, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Barclays starts, and it was in Christ that it was determined that you too should become the means whereby God's glory is praised. After you had heard the word which brings the truth, the good news of your salvation, that good news in which after you had believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit who had been promised to you. That sealing is talking about in the ancient world, anybody that had money, king, whatever, they wore signet rings. That was the main reason that, that a man would wear a ring. It had his seal on there and document anything. They put hot wax on it, stick that signet ring, and that says, this bears my seal. This is mine. First of all, if, if it's a, like a letter, if it's not addressed to you, you break this at the, the, uh, at the risk of incurring my ill will which if you were dealing with a king and a, a powerful person, you didn't really want them upset with you. You wanted the, only the, the person that had the right to break that seal, to break that seal. And then you could get the information in there. But when we were born again, when we exercised faith in Christ and we were, were, were saved, he took his signet ring and, in fact, in, in, there are places in... Um, the book of Revelation where it talks about having the seal of the Holy Spirit on your forehead. It's the opposite. Of, well, the mark of the beast is the counterfeit of God's seal. So if you could see in the spirit, you would actually just like you go and if you ever see a, um, a beef half, you know, they, they, there is a, an ink stamp on there, USD inspected. And they put that stamp on there, and that means the government inspected this, and this cow, this pig, whatever it was, was free of disease, and it's, it's ready to eat. Well, we have that seal on us, and God says, this is my child. That's why I argue so vehemently about purity of the believer. Over the years, I've drawn the conclusion that there are two motivations or two classes of people that believe in the you can lose your salvation. One is the group that are genuinely concerned that they're not going to make it in. And they live in constant fear that they're going to lose their salvation, which is no way to live because you really can't serve God. Because you're so worried about yourself, you can't get your eyes out on, on what your ministry is to others. But the second group is even worse. They actually believe they're going to make it to heaven they're just worried that other people, those sinners out there, they're not going to make it to heaven no matter what they say about their salvation. They may go to a church, but they don't believe right. And because in the evidence I know that, because they smoke and they drink and they cuss, and God, he looks on the heart. And, and for a lot of those people, they... It's not so much that they're being judgmental and arrogant, but they look at their family and their kids, their brothers, their sisters, their mom, their dad, and they're genuinely scared that they're not going to make it in. But every, all of their dealings with their family members then become their, their dealt or their dealings are out of a root of fear instead of faith. And you can't reach people when you approach them in fear. 
You reach them when you're standing in faith, backing the enemy off, their, off of their life, binding him off of them so they can see the knowledge of the truth. And, and sometimes it's, it's just a difference in a doctrinal stand. I mean, Paul said in Ephesians 4, don't be drunk with wine. There is no, there is no reason that drunkenness should ever be accepted. But you can't consign people to hell just because they may fall in that area occasionally. It's, there's definitely a price to pay for it. It's run probably more marriages than any other single thing in the world. But it still is not a sin that will send you to hell. It's something if you know someone and they claim to be saved and yet they have a problem with alcohol, they don't need your judgment. They need your prayers because that's, that's, there's a demonic um, attachment there, and they're, they're enslaved by that addiction, whether it's mental or physical or both. They need your prayer. Same way with um, um, cigarettes. I, I'm a reformed smoker, and I'll tell you, when I had, before I had my knee surgery, I stayed on, on uh, narcotics, pain relievers, for three years. And after my surgery, it took me a year to work my, and I hated it. I hated the way it made me feel. I hated, it, I, I called it, they were stupid pills. I could not think. In fact, after I took my last pain pill and I was off of them, it took me three to six months to be able to, my brain to operate again and think clearly. But I wasn't addicted in the sense that I craved them. I wanted off of them. But it was still hard to get off because the withdrawal was horrendous. And I had a year's worth of slow withdrawal you know, symptoms. But trying to quit smoking, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. That had a stronger hold on me. And I've, I've taught, I haven't, but I've read reports of people that... Uh, were heroin addicts and smoked, and they have said, I kicked heroin. <laughs> I haven't been able to whip nicotine yet. That one's got me hooked. And it's, but it's still, it, it can be an addiction. It can harm your life. It can destroy your life. But it may not send you to hell. And those people, rather than being judgmental towards them, we need to pray for them and help them to back that devil off till they can break the power of that addiction. We are, for us, when you're saved, you are sealed. You know, I've said it before, you can't lose your salvation the same way you can lose your keys. The Bible is clear, you get in by faith, the only way out is to get out by faith. You can't do enough good works to earn your way in, you can't sin enough for that God will kick you out. God's not your problem. Now, you can sin enough It'll cost you big time in this life, and it very well could send you to heaven early and with almost no rewards. But I don't know that it will cost you your salvation because Jesus said, you're in my hand and no one snatches you out. There's, there, there's just a powerful, and, and, it, and it's not, and I've heard people phrase it this way, and there is a truth to it. If, if you think you're saved, but you really want to sin, you may not be saved. <laughs> you may have just gone through the motions of saying a prayer, but you didn't actually get saved. Um, I'm not going to judge anyone on that. I'm just going to say, if you think you're saved, then let's deal with your lifestyle. 
And if you really are saved, you want to bring glory to God, and here's how you do it. And then teacher, I know in my own life, when, when I was in my rounder days, it was mostly based on it. I had an ignorance of the word. And I don't know if it was never teached in our church, or I just didn't listen. I mean, I was a kid. In my little Baptist church I grew up in, pretty much every message was, you must be born again. Yeah. And you'd have an altar call, but it was, you got to get saved, you live the best you can, and when you really struggle, you need to come down here and rededicate. And from eight years old to 17, when I finally just quit, I must have rededicated a thousand times. Yeah. And at some point, you just get frustrated and you say, this is this not working. Yeah. Why, why bother doing that? I'm just going to go out and have fun. This is too hard. But nobody ever taught me, you got to get in the Word and find out what the Word says and stand in faith. And here's how you stand in faith. But to be honest with you, I don't think the pastor knew how to do that. They just they had they had faith for salvation and ultimately you're going to make it to heaven. But in this life, you never know what God'll do. That was their attitude. Whatever happens, that's the will of God. Well, hogwash. There are a lot of things that happened in my life that weren't the will of God. It was the enemy. It was the devil just beating my brains out. And I didn't have any weapons to fight him because nobody had ever taught me how to have those, how to fight. Right. And it'd be like sending, sending and taking an 18-year-old, inducting them into the Army or into the Marines, even worse, because Marines, they're all the pointy end of the stick. And you go through basic training, and all they do is just get you in shape. And at the end of basic training, they hand you a, a, a rifle and say, here, go fight. Well, how do I load the thing? Oh, you'll figure it out. Yeah. Well, what do I do when it gets dirty? And Well, right. you need to clean it. Well, how do I do that? Oh, you'll figure it out. And, and throw them in the middle of the fight, and they, they got a weapon they don't know how to load. They don't know how to clean. They don't know how to aim it and shoot it. That's what Christians do. We get people saved, and we just throw them out in the world and say, yeah, right. go live, you know. Right. And here's my rules. Well, where did you get those rules? Well, that's just how I think it ought to be lived. And if you don't live it my way, you must be wrong. Well, it's like the little sign I saw, and I do agree with this one. You either like bacon or you're wrong. I mean, and some people have that, that stance on their doctrine. Well, I know in, in mine and Gina's life, even after I, at 29, when I just, I realized I got to get back in church, I still, I, I, got, I got before the Lord, I repented for all the stuff I did, and, man, it was like the weight of the world came off me. But I still had no assurance of my salvation. If you'd ask me, or if you die, are you going to heaven? It's like, well, I hope so. I wouldn't have had an assurance. But then we, we got in, involved with Evangelism Explosion. Yeah. And I had to learn how to present the gospel to other people. And when I learned that, it was like, oh, I can know that I'm saved? Well... Why didn't anybody ever show me these scriptures before? And it was like, okay, I, you know, you know, you want to smack yourself on the forehead and say, ah, I could have had a V8. Last thing, though, this, uh, he, he finishes up here. Uh, you, were, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit who was promised to you. But the last one, King James, or New King James says, 
who is the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The redemption of the purchased possession is the rapture for us. That's when we get our new body, and there are no positional truths versus actual truths then. When you get that resurrected body, every promise that you have, they're manifested fully at that point. But for us now, our inheritance, first of all, it's positional. Paul will get to it later in Ephesians. We're seated with him in heavenly places. So everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. I have a right to it. But I'm not walking in much at all. I remember I heard Brother Hagin say years ago, you know, we have an ocean of glory and an ocean of things that God's given us. And we go dip our toe in it and jump out and say, oh, glory to God, look what I've got. And he said, you got a wet big toe. He said, you know, there's a whole ocean of stuff out there and nobody's even knee deep in it, let alone swimming in it. And but anything that we have positionally, we have to bring into our own lives because it's of grace. We have to bring it in by faith. We have to believe God to walk that out. Healing is that way. Positionally, I'm already healed. But if I'm going to walk in healing, I've got to have faith for healing. And if I don't believe for healing, it doesn't just happen. If I want to walk in, in financial prosperity, I not only have, I have it positionally, positionally I have all things pertain to life and godliness. I've got more than enough money to do everything God's ever told me. But to get it in my bank account, I got to believe for it. I got to believe for God to prosper the things that I put my hand to so that suddenly, and I got to sow seed. I mean, if I'm, if I'm a farmer, you know, right now they're getting ready to prepare their fields. If they don't prepare the fields and put the seed in the ground, right. next fall they don't have a crop. If you don't plant seed, and that seed primarily is what you say, but in some areas, you, you, it's in, in finances. If you don't sow finances, you can't get finances. If you, you know, I, I've said to certain individuals, they're lonely and they have no friends. Well, then you have to show yourself friendly. You have to go out and, and be a friend to somebody. And when you're a friend to somebody, then you'll get friends. You know, when, when you're a crudgemudgeon, which is, it's hard not to do when that's what's in your heart. What you sow, especially, and, and unfortunately, we can sow a lot of things in unbelief and plant a lot of seeds that we start reaping crops and it's like, yeah, where did this come from? Well, it's because you've been... I'll give you an example. I talked about my granny a minute ago. I do not remember a time that when she came and lived with us the last five, six years of her life because she, she had, um, today she would have had a great quality of life because her hips were so bad that her right hip, her femur had worked, had worn a hole all the way through her hip and was protruding through her hip. I never know a time that she didn't walk on crutches, at least one. And towards the end of her life, she was in pain constantly. Well, they would have gone and done hip replacement surgery on her, and she'd have been, she could have walked pain-free. But towards the end, she got very unstable on her feet. So Dad, we bought a little trailer, put it right behind our farmhouse. She came and lived with us. 
And I remember she had an old 56 Bel Air, called it Rusty. I mean, you get you got up to 30 miles an hour, the fenders would just flap because the, the all the, the the bolts were rusted out, and it, it would get to flapping in the wind. And just You'd have to slow down so it wouldn't bang so hard. But she would drive it, and it's a wonder it ever kept a clutch because she couldn't take her foot off the clutch because it hurt too much to lift that leg. That was her really bad leg. And she would, you know, try to get her foot, her right foot position where she could touch the gas and not move, just move her foot and not lift her heel to push the brake. But she said, when Rusty dies, I die. She said that forever. And when I got old enough, she, she actually was the first person I got to drive legal on the road with because she'd get in her car and I could drive with an adult in the front seat. I'd drive and she'd go with me and I'd go do things, go to baseball practice or whatever. She'd sit in the car and watch me and it got her out of the trailer. She loved it. But I remember the day, this was like a week before she died, um, dad went to her and said, Mom, the car has no brakes. We broke a, a brake line. Do not, because she had the habit, she would go down when the mail came and she'd get the mail and we our driveway was about a quarter of a mile long downhill and had a 90 degree turn right before you got to the county road and he said do not you can't drive rusty till i fix the brakes and i will get to it this weekend i'm off i got a long weekend leave the car alone well she was stubborn mail came she got in that car had no brakes and she went over that hill and she hit the brakes and it didn't when she got to that 90 degree turn she went straight ran down into the woods didn't really hurt her bad and she was very fortunate there was a road crew working right there uh and they came and got her out and got her back up to the trailer she just had bruises no big thing but she looked at her car and dad told her he said mom i can get that car fixed we'll we'll get and if not we'll replace it we'll get you something to drive Within five days, she was gone. She went to bed for a nap, didn't wake up. But she had said for years, when Rusty dies, I die. And in her mind, Rusty died, and she, I don't know how much of it, was she just quit? She already was in bad enough health that, you know, once you give up, or, and the fact that she had planted that seed. It was unbelief, negative faith, but she said it often enough, it became her reality. And... You know, it's a tragedy. But I see that in people in general. People will talk about what they've got instead of what they want. And Charles Capps used to say, faith is like calling the dog. He said, if you want your dog to come, you don't go out on your back porch and, and start lamenting and crying and say, no, the dog's not here. The dog's not here. Why is the dog not here? No, you go out there and you call the dog. And the dog will come because it belongs to you. And it knows you. He said, well, it's like that everywhere. You plant those seeds, you call in that thing that you want. And, and it works. I mean, it's, it's part of, but it works because we have that inheritance. And, that's the, and I'll, I'll quit with this one. But I said this Sunday, as being a word of faith person, you get accused of bossing God around. It's not a matter, you never, I mean, nobody's big enough to boss God around. But you find out what God's already said is yours, and then you boss the devil around. Yeah. Yeah. And then you say with certainty, this is mine. 
When you first start, you may have more faith failures than you have faith victories. But it's like every other skill. The more you do it, the better you get at it. The more words you get in you, the, the faster you start doing the fight, the faster that dog comes because they start recognizing your voice. And you've got a host of angels that are ready and willing to go get those things when they hear that word of faith. When they hear you agreeing with the Father, it's like, hey, God's already said that's yours. You agree with it, I'll go get it. Now, they may have to fight through some things to get it back to you, and it's probably not going to be instant, but the, the mountain will start cracking. And you get enough cracks in enough mountains, you put enough rain on it, it'll eventually crumble. may take a little time, but I don't care if I have to dig a tunnel through the mountain as long as I get to the other side and get what I want. And if God's given it to me, that's what I want. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.